study of the book of Hebrews. Um, we'll be in this for quite a while. And the book of Hebrews was written to Hebrew believers that were under very heavy persecution. Uh, now, there was uh, a lot of pressure for these Hebrews to mix grace and the law of Moses. They were saying, listen, okay, do your Jesus thing, but keep doing the things of the law. There was a lot of pressure for that. Now, two weeks ago, Pastor Scotty introduced uh, us to this study, and last week, Pastor Nate covered the superiority of Jesus over angels. Now, this week, we'll be looking at the importance of staying focused on your faith. Now, I titled this message, The First Rope-A-Dope, and I'm not going to tell you why. You can find out at the end. You will find out why I called it that, but that's what I titled the message. Okay, let's jump in. We're starting chapter 2, starting in uh, verse 1. says, For this reason... We must pay closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now, when you see for this reason, it's kind of like seeing therefore. As a matter of fact, some of your translations might say therefore. Uh, but it is a connecting phrase that links that passage to the previous passages before it. Uh, and as Pastor Nate said last week, the previous passages were covering the fact that the Jews, uh, they, had a, they thought that angels were superior. They were into angels, and this was last week it was talking about how Jesus is superior to those angels. So uh, that was the previous passage that it's linking us to. Now the author, what he was trying to say is he didn't want them to get wrapped up in angels. That was the whole point. Don't get wrapped up in angels. It's almost like an idol god when you get wrapped up in them. Because angels are nowhere near as important as Jesus and his words. Now the angels, uh, remember, they answer to Jesus. They're subservient to Jesus. So why would you put your focus on something that is subservient to Jesus and obviously to his word? So it makes no sense to focus on them. Now, notice the author said, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. Now, the Greek word for pay attention is prosecco, and it means watch out or beware. It means to watch out or beware. And it lends to the idea of, you know how when you carry a cu hot cup of coffee, is anybody here like me and they always fill their coffee cup too full? Anybody do that? Because you're thinking, this will save me at least one trip to the coffee maker. Anybody else think that? And when you're carrying it, you're going, watching, so you don't spill it on you. It's that idea, being very cautious, paying careful attention. It's the same kind of idea in the Greek as what he was saying when he said, pay closer attention. Now, why does the author warn us about paying attention to the words of Jesus? And it's pretty simple because, in general, all people struggle to pay attention. That's really what it is. I'm going to tell you something that is going to shock you. And this is something that's kind of a family secret, but I'm ADHD. Not that big of a shock, huh? I'm ADHD, and my mind is always going 100 miles an hour, so I understand what it means to, to lose focus and not be able to pay attention. But honestly, I believe that our fast-paced lives makes everyone struggle a little bit with attention deficit. I really do, because the way our lives are now, it's designed to keep us running all the time. You know, so I'm not the only one that has that issue. But the sad thing is, often when you have a busy life like that, one of the side effects of a busy life is your priorities sometimes get messed up in that fast-paced life. Now, regardless, the author wanted them to be sure that they just focused on God's instruction. He was saying, listen, pay attention. I know there's a lot going on. You're so worried about fitting in. Pay attention, because what's happening here is very, very uh, important. Now, they needed to focus on God's words especially more right at this point because, remember, they were being persecuted. They were being pressured, and that was a daily occurrence. This wasn't something that happened once in a while. They wanted them to convert. They wanted them to, at least at the bare minimum, mix the law and grace. So they're saying, you're under attack. Now is not the time to not be paying attention to the word of God. One of the things I always tell people is the first thing you do before you start calling your friends, 
and whining about your life before you call and look for help, and I'm all about finding help. But first, pray and go to the Word of God. You'd be shocked how many times the questions you're asking, God will answer if you give him a chance. And if you can't get what you're, if you can't understand, then, then seek help. But give God a chance because the Word of God is what gets me through. I don't know how you guys do it, but when I'm struggling and when I'm hurting, I immediately go to the Word of God. And the reason I do is I, I'm just not that smart a man, evidently, and, and, and things make me, the things weigh on me. Am I the only one that feels burdened when something's off? Does anybody else get that way? For, and does it feel like a literal weight to you? It does to me, and I just don't like it, so I immediately go to the Word of God, and this is what he's asking them to do. Now, I know a lot of times people don't like to admit this, right? But you've got to be careful because a fast-paced life can also make you drift away. Start drifting slowly away from God. It happens all the time. And he was afraid that they were going to drift away because of all the pressure they were under. So he was saying, listen, make sure you pay close attention to the word of God because I think that will keep you from drifting away or giving up or, or drifting away from your faith. Now, it's very important that you understand that the author said drift away. He was saying pay careful attention to the things we've heard lest you drift away. Now, he said drift away. He did not say lose your salvation. How do we know that? Well, first and foremost, it's impossible. You can't do that. If you were going to be able to lose your salvation, it wouldn't be called eternal life, right? It would be called conditional life. So if you believe that God is, is wise enough to understand what words mean, and if you believe God inspired those words, you have to believe that when he said he who believes has eternal life, he actually meant, you know, eternal life. So you cannot lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about drifting away. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that all of us have drifted away at one time or another. It's happened to every one of us if you're a believer. And if it hasn't happened to you, you must have got saved a couple days ago. Because I'm telling you, it does happen to everybody. Now, we, I'm not saying that we all have this complete breakdown of moral restraint and just start becoming a full-blown apostate. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we all have times where we let our mind get busy with the wrong things and we start to drift away. And before you know it, I know you've heard the enemy whispering in your ear before. This is ridiculous. Why is this happening to you? You know, why is life so hard? Why are you struggling financially? Why are you struggling with your relationships? Why are you struggling to understand? You know, if, if, you're, if God is so faithful, well, look at all the things you've done. You've been going to church sometimes twice a week, and what happens? Now you're in this situation. How did that work out for you? You should just give up and do what you want and have a little fun because God's just making it too hard. That's how the enemy whispers in our ear. Time and time again he comes at us with that. It's the enemy that's whispering in your ear when you're struggling uh, with a relationship or something. Well, you need to go tell them. You ever hear that in your ear? I promise you that's not the Holy Spirit telling you to call somebody back and tell them off. That's not him. You know what I mean? So it happens to all of us. The enemy comes at all of us. And before you get self-righteous, because I've had people come up to me before with this self-righteous mindset, and they say, I've never doubted God. I've never been angry with God. I've never drifted away. I never lost my attention. I'm like, yeah, and you never tell the truth because none of that's true. You know, every, we're human beings. You know, I, I told one person, well, gosh, we didn't need Jesus. We could have just waited on you and crucified you because evidently you're perfect. You know, that's not the way it works. Remember, before you say I've never been tempted to drift away, remember Jesus was tempted by the devil to drift away. So I'm going to say you're no better. Just throwing it out there because it happened to Jesus. Look at this in Matthew 4, 8. It says, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all 
these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, notice Jesus didn't say, you can't do that. You know, the, the devil is called the prince and the power of the air, the god of this present age. He does have supernatural ability, and he absolutely could have given him those things. Or if, if he couldn't have, why would he have offered to the son of God? You know what I mean? And Jesus said to him, uh, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. See, the enemy is cunning, and he went after Jesus, he'll come after you. But when he's coming, when he, when he's coming after you, he doesn't come at us as hard as he did Jesus right? Because that's Jesus. He comes at us subtly. He's very smart. He comes at us very subtly and slowly starts to try to push us away from God, right? He points out things at church to try to get you annoyed with him. He points out things in your family, things at work. He points out things in relationships. He's always trying to bring dissension in your life. He does it with these little small whispers in our ear, right? Now, for example, when we feel hurt or feel betrayed, it's the enemy that says, well, you don't need to go back to church. Look at that. Th that person goes to church there. Why would you go back? Think about that for a second. One person, you get in a debate with them or an argument with them or they hurt your feelings, you stop going to church? Was his name Jesus that offended you? So why are you not going to church? Church is about Jesus. You know, it doesn't make any sense. That's like saying, you know, I was offended by somebody at Walmart. I'm never going to shop there again. I dare you to say that, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to say that, are they? And it's the same thing. It doesn't make sense. Why would you throw the baby in with the bathwater? Oh, somebody hurt my feelings at church, and even though there's, you know, 400 people there, I'm going to be staring right at them, and they're going to be staring right at me. That's the devil whispering those things to you, trying to bring dissension. He's always coming at us if we're not paying careful attention. Now, it never made sense to me when people would do that. It just didn't make sense. Let me ask you something. If someone offends you at work, do you quit? Or do you go back to work and suck it up and learn to deal with it? Well, I hope you suck it up and learn to go to deal with it, or you probably have 75 jobs, right? If you're in school and someone hurts your feelings in school, do you decide you're just not going to get an education and you quit? Is that it? Well, seventh grade should be good enough. Almost, you know, Amish go to eighth and they're okay. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, it, 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 we don't apply that anywhere else in our life just with church. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's just foolish. Now, next, he reminded his readers uh, that God, unlike our judicial system, is 100% just. So Hebrews 2.2. He says, for the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. I'm sorry, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the, uh, through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them by both signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now, have you ever noticed that when someone else is going, going through a struggle, we'll say, let's say someone else is doing something you consider wrong, right? When we feel like somebody else is sinning against us or against God, or we always want justice for them, don't we? When someone makes you mad, when you're like, Lord, smite them, you know what I mean? Lord, tear them down. I mean, read some of the stuff David said. You know, I don't feel so bad about the jerk I've become. Because you read David's going, Lord, totally destroy my enemies, lay them waste, burn their camps to the ground. I'm going, ooh, somebody had temper issues. You know, we want justice when it's somebody else. But when it's us, it's not a bad sin, it's a slip-up. What we call, you know, blasphemy with them is just a misstep with us. So when we mess up, we don't pray, God, bring the same justice to me you brought to that other guy. Who has ever prayed that? 
Has anybody here ever got down and said, God, drop the hammer on me? Anybody ever pray that? No, we become very meek and we're like, you know, my heavenly father, I love you so much. Then we go straight King James and mine heart is after thee. You know what I mean? And he's going, yeah, you screwed up just like they did. Shut up. That's basically what it is. We want grace and mercy. Well, regardless of what we want or what we think, God is always going to be 100% just. However, although we deserve justice and he has the right to be 100% just, usually it's not justice that we always receive. Usually if we're willing to confess our sin, we receive grace instead, which means getting something that you do not deserve. We get grace because we are under the blood of Jesus, right? The justice we deserve was taken by Jesus on the cross, right? He took the penalty of our sin. If we got what we deserved, every one of us would be in hell. There is no one good enough, right? That's why I don't like pastors saying, talking to, pe to people who are unbelievers and calling them sinners. I'm like, you, my friend, are a sinner. If you want to meet the sinner, the biggest sinner in your house, Look in the mirror. There he is. So I don't like that. I don't like that, that mindset that people have. Here's the truth of the matter. Everybody sins, but we are under the blood of Jesus, and Jesus took that sin. If he didn't, we would all be in trouble. Now, that's why the author reminded them in verse 2 and 3 with a very powerful question. He, try, he tries to, to prove a point to them. The question is, how shall we escape? How shall we escape if we neglect no greatest salvation? Right now, in the old covenant, the consequences for disobedient were pretty severe. Right, and the new covenant, if the old covenant had severe consequences, then the new covenant under Christ also has severe consequences. It just makes sense. He's not going to not allow them uh, any grace, and then all of a sudden drop the hammer on us, and he's not going to drop the hammer on them, and all of a sudden give us all grace. He's, it's the same, right? It's the same way disobedience is met with serious consequences. It's just the way it is. Now, the next, the author explains how um, he came to that simple but accurate conclusion. He says, the word spoken through angels. And he says, so if the word spoken through angels, that's referring to the law that was given to Moses at Mount Sinai. Right? That's what that's referring to. Because if you'll remember, there were angels involved in mediating that message. Look at Galatians 3.19. It says, uh, why then was the law given? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised, talking about Jesus. God gave his law through... Is it up there? Okay. Do you like study your light going, did he, did he just have a stroke? Why did he go quiet? Okay, let's try, let's try that again for the sake of those online. But the law was given design, uh, but the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. God gave his law through angels to Moses, who was the mediator between God and the people. Acts 7.38 says, Moses was with our ancestors, the assembly of God's people in the wilderness, when the angel spoke to him at Mount Sinai and said, uh, Most, I'm sorry, and there Moses received life-giving words to pass on to us. Now, what, was the, uh, what the author meant was, and this is kind of a paraphrase, he meant if the Old and New Covenants agree that there are consequences for disobedience, how can we escape without God's grace? So basically what he's saying is when he says, how shall we escape if we neglect no so great a salvation? 
He's saying, how can you escape if God has always told us there is going to be consequences for sin? The Old Testament told us that. The New Testament tells us that. There's no way for you to escape the fact that there is consequences for sin. It's really, really important. Now, the Greek word for escape here is ekphugo, and it means to successfully flee from. And the Greek word for neglect here is maleo, and it means to be careless or cease to be concerned about something. That's what it means. Now, salvation is the Greek word soteria, soteria, and it means to deliver, rescue, or make safe. Now, every time you see the word salvation, it doesn't always mean of your soul, okay? As a matter of fact, John is the only gospel written all about learning how to believe, right? Of the gospels, that's the one that's written to show us how to believe. Most of the time when you see that word soteria in there, that means uh, it, it most of the time just means deliverance because that's what it is. The word means to deliver, to rescue, or to make safe. It doesn't mean salvation of the soul every time. It depends on the context of the passage it's used in. Now, in this instance, to neglect no great a sal- so great a salvation doesn't mean rejecting the gospel. This isn't talking about salvation of the soul. How do we know that? Because he's writing this to Hebrew believers. You don't describe to believers how to become believers, right? This isn't talking about salvation of the soul. This is talking about a different kind of salvation. Here it means a failure to care about the future consequences for believers when they sin. If you neglect so great a salvation, he's saying you're neglecting the deliverance from sin that's been given to you. Because listen, we've been delivered from the penalty of sin when it comes to heaven and hell. We haven't been delivered from the consequences, right? Listen, I've told people this in my jail ministry time and time again. Say, listen, I'm no better than you. I've done enough things in my life where if I'd have got caught, I'd have been there too. And before you judge somebody in jail, go back over your life. I mean the life you haven't told everybody about yet. You know what I mean? Go back over your life and think of the things you've done. If you'd been caught in that moment, would you have gone to jail? Would you have? I mean, is there anybody here who's never done an arrestable offense? Good, because I didn't think, you know, we invited the Holy Spirit to sit in the pew with somebody today. Everybody here has done an arrestable offense. But one thing I also tell them is, listen, I'm not going to speak to get you out of trouble. And the reason is I believe in justice, and there are consequences for our sin. If you stole from somebody, believe it or not, guess what? You need to make restitution and go to jail. That's the way it is, right? This is what he's saying. You can't escape that, especially if you're rejecting God. That's our escape, right? It's really, really important that you understand that. Now, the consequences and reward he's mainly talking about here, because these were Jews, a lot of them were, is talking about the second coming in his kingdom. The Jews didn't really think about heaven. We think about heaven when we think about death. They thought about the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year reign of Christ where he reigns on earth. That was promised to Abraham, and, and it's going to happen, right? And when they thought about the consequences of their sin, they thought, if I don't repent of this sin, then when he's reigning here on earth, I don't get to reign with him. That means you get to sit the bench for a thousand years. Okay, that's what they thought of when it was brought up. Now, believers can neglect their faith still to this day in so many ways, and I think that we're so busy that it keeps us from realizing that the consequences are coming. I think it does, because first of all, we fail to endure in our walk with Christ. People who get mad and just quit following God. That happens all the time, all the time. And they act like they're punishing someone. I don't understand that. You know, well, then I'm going to stop going to church. Well, who does that hurt? You. It's not going to hurt anybody here. It hurts you. We'll miss you. Some of you. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But it's not hurting us. It's hurting you. 
Uh, another way we do that is abandoning our confession of the Lord as our Savior. So, have you ever noticed that sometimes doors open up for you to share the gospel, but you're so worried about being in with the group you're with or so worried about being promoted within the group you're in that you just pass that opportunity so you look like a religious freak? Anybody ever run across that? Listen, when you get to the point where you're not willing to share the Lord as Savior anymore, confess the Lord as Savior anymore, for any other reason, that's drifting away, right? Here's a big one, by not living a life led by our faith. Listen, when I say living a life led by faith, I think a lot of times people think it means just staying at home and staring at your Bible all the time and, you know, singing, oh, happy day. That, that, you know, living by your faith means that the core of your life is your faith. What you do who you hang around with, the things you say, the places you go, all surround your faith. They're built on God and his word. And there's a lot of times that we just stop allowing that to be the influencing thing in our life. And sometimes we replace having a life led by faith with having a life led by a desire for money. Having a life led with a desire to have things. Well, one of these days someone else is going to have those things, the ones that don't rot away, and someone else is going to be spending your money. But your salvation does not get weaker, and no one can take it from you. So that's where your center of your focus should be. Now, this was complicated by the fact that his audience was, you know, was mainly Jewish believers, because neglect may also be accompanied by retreat, and he knew that. And when he started noticing that they were neglecting to live their lives driven by faith, he's like, listen, I know the pressure that's around you. You will not escape the consequences. If you stop allowing faith to be the driving force in your life, the next step is retreat, meaning you'll start fading away. And that's what he was trying to tell him. Now, for believers today, it would be exactly what he said, drifting away from God and his word, which is usually accompanied by falling back into your old worldly habits. That usually happens when you start falling away from God or drifting back. So basically acting like you haven't even been redeemed. One thing I'm really cautious about is saying, you ever heard people that are always trying to judge who is and who isn't saved? You ever met those people? Yeah, I don't like that. Because, listen, you can't judge somebody's salvation by the condition they're in right now. You don't know what's happened in their life. It's very important you understand that. You don't know what's going on in their life. But the Bible says there are those who have forgotten they were once purged of their old sin. You can literally drift so far from God that people wouldn't know you as a believer anymore. They wouldn't be able to identify you as a believer anymore. Are you still going to heaven? Yes, because we go to heaven by faith, not by works. You don't ever say you want works to be the determining factor to go to heaven, or you're a lot better than me, right? We're going to heaven by his works, not our own. But it's easy. The more we drift from God, the more we look like the world, because we're agreeing with their philosophy. That's another sermon. Now, let's move on. In Acts, uh, I'm sorry, in verses 5 through 8, the author discussed God's plan for man to have total dominion over creation. So Hebrews 2, 5 through 8. He says, For he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things that are subjected to him. Now that's very wordy. And sometimes it confuses people because they're not exactly who they're talking about when it says he put the world in subjection or, or creation to subjection to man. The word man gets confusing. And a lot of times people think this is talking about Jesus. But if you notice the word man in that passage and the personal pronoun he, neither of the two 
are capitalized. Okay? So if they're not capitalized, in most translations, any references to God are capitalized. Not deity, because there's all foreign gods mentioned. They're not capitalized. But anything that's discussing God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus, is capitalized, and so are the personal pronouns that go with it. So he's not talking about God here, okay? He's talking about man. That's, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about God originally. His original plan was to put the earth in subjection to man. And we're going to talk about that more here in a minute. But what it meant was, look at what he told Adam in the garden. That's what creation was supposed to be. It was supposed to be that you weren't at, you weren't, you know, at odds with animals. You didn't have to worry about getting eaten by animals. They were in subjection to man, right? I don't know if that means he could go, come here, and an elephant would come running. But I'm just saying that, you know, it meant that the animals were supposed to be in subjection to man. The earth was supposed to be in subjection to man. It was supposed to bring forth the food, right? Remember, in the curse, the curse for man was not would take hard work to get the ground to provide. But before that, that wasn't supposed to be the case. It was supposed to be that the world be in subjection to us. But that got messed up, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, but sadly, but in no way a surprise to God, the fall of man is what absolutely messed that plan up. And he knew it was going to happen. right? He knew it was going to happen. But the way God works is he lets us see things so that we understand why he does them. right? Have you ever known that your kid was headed for trouble? Something simple, and you're like, let's see how that works out for him. He'll learn not to do it again. You ever done that? Moms may not be as quick to do that as dads in some cases, but, you know, if you keep telling a kid, listen, you need to quit messing with that. Eventually, that's going to fall off and hit you in the head, and they keep messing with it. A few days later, you're like, if you don't stop messing with that, you're going to get hurt. Well, a few days later, you just end up going, go ahead, let's see how that works out for you. When they come crying to you, say, remember when I told you it was going to hit you in the head? Well, bingo, there you have it. It hits you in the head. You know, God, if God had not given us an opportunity for the, for the world to be in subjection, of creation to be in subjection to man, we would have always said, well, he never gave us a chance. Now God can say, listen, the garden did exactly what it was supposed to do. The garden was supposed to show you that even in a perfect situation where there's only one sin to commit, you'll commit it. So now you can't cry out and say, I didn't give you a chance. I put you in a situation that was tailor-made for success, and you screwed it up. You had one stinking tree you couldn't mess with. It's just like your kids. You say, don't touch something, that becomes the most interesting and intriguing thing in the world. It's our sin nature. As soon as he said, don't touch that tree, you know what Adam and Eve were thinking? I have got to get to that tree. That's just the way it is. He had to give us that opportunity so we would find out what we are apart from him. Now, in verse 6, the phrase, one has testified, he was referring to a psalm by King David, and more specifically, Psalms 84, 6, where David reflected on the promise of man's dominion. It was just kind of something he was reflecting on. He marveled that God would ever have trusted humanity with dominion. It was something he marveled about, right? And that's why when they were quoting, he said that they were made a little lower than the angels. What he was saying was our creation, see, angels are a totally different creation. I heard Pastor Nate talk about this uh, in his message. I don't like to hear people say, well, heaven gained another angel when somebody dies. That's a demotion. That's a demotion because angels, Jesus didn't die for the angels. He died for you. Jesus didn't promise the angels the millennial kingdom. He promised it to you. Angels can't be redeemed. You can. So he's saying your position will be higher with him. But here you're made a little lower than the angels, and yet even though we're lower than them because we don't have the power they have, he still made the world 
subject to him or in, made us in dominion over it, and that was something that David was just blown away. He said, who are we that God would have even gave us a chance to be in dominion over creation, right? Now, because of all the fall of humanity in the garden, Adam will never realize that promise, to have everything under subjection to him. He died before he was able to realize that because he sinned against God, and we no longer had the dominion we had at one time. So the, promise, the promise of the dominion over earth, that's going to come during that millennial reign. Okay, now, the millennial reign, a lot of times people get confused about this when we start talking about the millennial reign. I want to explain that a little bit. The word world in this phrase, the world to come, is from the Greek oikumene, oikumene. And in context, it's referring to what theologians call the Lord's eschatological reign. Okay, now... You don't have to remember that. Basically, that's a big fancy word for the end times reign in the kingdom. That's what it's talking about. So when he says the world to come, he's talking about the coming millennial kingdom. That's what he's talking about, okay? And Isaiah briefly describes what the millennial kingdom will be like in chapter 11. And this is that world and dominion that he was talking about when we actually have dominion over creation. So Isaiah 11, 1 through 5. says, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse... And a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is talking about Jesus. Jesse was the father of David, King David. Now, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Capital H, who are we talking about? Jesus. Uh, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Now this is a description that just gives me goosebumps. Because this is talking about when Jesus reigns, when he takes control in that thousand year reign, for the first time ever... We're going to see real justice. You know what that means? Attorneys don't get people off on, no offense, <laughs> attorneys over here going, I think I could. No, but attorneys can't get people off on a loophole. They don't make laws that literally work against God, right? In this time frame, it's going to be 100% complete justice. When somebody does something, before they're ever arrested, Jesus will know, and they'll be judged for it. They'll be taken up immediately. I mean, just immediately be taken care of for that. So I, that just gives me goosebumps thinking about that. Now, a lot of times people have argued with me about this millennial kingdom. Some people say, well, the, king, the millennial kingdom is, is metaphoric, and it's talking about the times we live in right now. Anybody ever heard that one? Then some people say, the millennial kingdom happened back in AD 70, and and when Titus came in and destroyed the temple, that was his years of tribulation. That's another opinion, one I like to call wrong. Right. Yeah, that's exactly it. So here's what I always tell people. Can you name a time in history, past or present, where this description fits that Isaiah gave us? Can you mention that time in history where a righteous judge reigned in complete righteousness, and only issued 100% fair judgments. Have you ever known of a time in history or in the present where that's possible? Ever. It has never, ever happened. There's never been 100% righteous judgments and fair judgments, ever. 
Second, I remind them that the description didn't stop there. This is a great description about the millennial kingdom. He's talking about the justice of the millennial kingdom. But let's look, about the, let's look at the creation of the millennial kingdom and how it comes back under dominion. Listen to this, I, Isaiah eleven six. It says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Anybody ever see a wolf and a lamb walking as homies? Anybody ever see that? You know, having sleepovers? And the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat. Anybody seen that? I mean, they lay down with them now while they're eating them, right? And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, that's probably talking about me, the fatling, and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Have you ever known a time when you would feel comfortable letting your little son go out and lead a young lion? How many times, Michelle, did you look at, at Mason when he was little and go, Mason, you're four now. It's time to start leading the lion. Get in the cage. Show mommy how you can lead the lion. Nobody does that because it, it, it isn't talking about now. That, that can't happen right now. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Okay, so you know how cows graze to eat? I'm not a farmer, but I think they just eat grasses and stuff. Well, lions don't. Lions eat meat. During the kingdom, they will be vegetarians. They won't kill anything. They'll eat grass like the cow. That's what this is saying. Uh, it says their young will lie down together. Okay, so the bear, cub, and the young calf will lay down by each other without fear of being injured. I mean, they just, they're homies, right? Um, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of a cobra. Oh, we're coming back to that. And the weaned child will put his hand on, in, on the viper's den. Listen to this. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, from, uh, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So here's another one to people who say that it's already happened or it's happening right now. Would you let your child lay by a cobra den? If you really believe we live in the kingdom right now, take your child and lay it by a den of cobras, which is me being funny. Don't really do that. I don't want to be sued because I'm going to tell you what happened. They're going to get bit. But during the millennial kingdom, it says they will not harm them because creation is under subjection to man, right? Because we're in the, the millennial kingdom. So it will not hurt them. So when people say that that's already happened, no, it's coming. It's something we have to look forward to. It's simple. Look back through history. Show me a time when any of this happened and you have an argument. If none of this has happened yet, then it hasn't happened yet. Not to mention the millennial kingdom. The only thing that follows the millennial kingdom in the Bible is... New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and all of us entering it. That's, that's what's next. So if it happened back then, we missed it. We got left out. We missed the bus. We're still at the station, right? Just saying. Uh, but I just don't understand. Some people want to just complicate what God wanted to be simple and glorious. I just don't get it. Okay, now, last section, Hebrews 2.9. But we do see him who is made a little lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now notice the crowning glory of man when it was talking about us was the fact that we were supposed to be in dominion and dominion would come again. The crowning glory of Jesus is something different. It's because he was crowned with glory because he laid down his life to defeat death on the grave. He was crowned differently than us. Now in verse 9 the author explained the sacrifice Jesus made by allowing himself to be human. And this reminds me a lot of something called the rumble in the jungle. How many people know what that is? Raise your hand. Seriously? The rumble in the jungle. 
No, but good guess. <laughs> I, I'm going to give it to you afterwards to find out why. Now I'm curious. But uh, the Rumble in the Jungle was a fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. How many people know those two people? Okay, we're seeing more hands go up now. That was a fight between those two. And those two, it was a title fight, and they decided to have that fight in Africa because uh, both of them have been known for philanthropy, and they were supposed to be, and this fight was supposed to take place in Africa. Now, in that fight, Muhammad Ali employed a tactic called the rope-a-dope. The rope-a-dope. Let me explain what the rope-a-dope was. Okay, he covered himself against the ropes for round after round, letting Foreman pound on him. So he's covered up like this, and every time he got hit, he would bounce back into the ropes, which would absorb some of the punch, right? Foreman, I was trying to think of a way I could describe him when he was young. He was like, I don't know, he was a big man. He had hands like canned hands. I mean, they were like this. And usually when he hit somebody, they just didn't get up, right? He had like a five-inch longer reach than Muhammad Ali. Everybody thought this was going to be a quick one. But his, the rope-a-dope was supposed to, he was supposed to antagonize him and, and talk trash to him and get him mad to where he kept punching and punching while he covered himself in the ropes. He did that for seven rounds. And the only time he would come out off the ropes, he'd lower his hands enough to talk trash to the man pounding on him, slip in a couple quick jabs that didn't hurt, and then covered himself up again. And what happened was he made Foreman mad, and his trash talking made Foreman mad. Right? So his plan was he was hoping that he would punch himself out and be exhausted in the later rounds. It was a dangerous plan because, you know, you had to be in great shape to take that much of a beating, and you had to be able to cover up to take that much of a beating, and you had to be against the rope so it would absorb some of the power of those punches. It was a pretty tricky, tricky uh, thing to do and, and really, really dangerous. Now, as crazy as that plan sounds, it went perfectly. He kept Foreman furious the whole fight. And Foreman wore him, I forget the actual punch count, but it was crazy. Foreman wore himself out. Then in the eighth round, Muhammad Ali came off the ropes and knocked him out. And he couldn't fight back because he was gassed. That's the rope-a-dope. And I believe that's exactly what Jesus did to the devil. I think he rope-a-doped him. I really do. Let me explain that. Right? Here's why. His whole life, the devil actually thought he could beat him. His whole life. The devil didn't understand what he was doing. So every time he saw them trying to arrest Jesus, the devil's going, I am knocking this guy out. Every time people were trying to kill him and he had to sneak out of the town, the devil's going, just a matter of time and I'm going to knock you out. Right? When he was arrested and they were torturing him and beating him, the devil's going, I am knocking this guy out. He is on his last legs as Jesus bounces off the ropes. When they nailed him to a cross, he thought, I'm winning this. I am seconds away from putting this away. When he died, the confidence in the enemy had to rise. But he knew something was wrong when this, the whole world turned black when he died. He said, it is finished. And the mountains split in two. And saints who had passed away came out of their graves and walked around. But... He was still dead, and they still put him in a tomb, so he's like, okay, weird, scary, but I still won. I knocked him out. See, he didn't get rope-a-dope until they went to check on that tomb on the third day. This is when he found out that he was rope-a-doped when they saw the empty tomb, Luke 24, 1 through 6a. But on the first day of the week, 
at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the man said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. That's when the devil knew he got rope-a-dope. That's when Jesus bounced off the ropes and dropped him, just like Foreman went down. That was the knockout punch. Jesus was like, yeah, yeah, keep thinking you're going to win. Oh, yeah, they're arresting me. Yep, they're beating me. Yep, I'm hanging on a cross. I'm still going to win this. And when they went to the open tomb, that's when the devil knew he got roped up because that's when he came off and actually won. Now, I'm going to finish this section by reading what the Apostle Paul said about the two Adams. And this describes how where the first Adam lost the fight, the last Adam came and roped up the devil and won. Romans 5, 12 through 21. We'll close with this. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered, entered into the world, and death through sin, so, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even to those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. That's just a wordy way of saying that Moses didn't commit the same sin Adam did, but Adam was a representative of humanity, and anyone in humanity who would have been in there would have made the same mistake. That's what he was saying there. Verse 15, But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of God, the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for, the one, for on the one hand... Uh, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one. Notice it went capital. The one, Jesus Christ. Verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through the act of one uh, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even though through the obedience of the one, capital O, Jesus, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, what? Grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. See, the first Adam lost the fight. The second Adam won it. I just love that. Okay, we're going to go ahead and stop there. We'll pick up there next week. I'm going to ask if you would to please bow your head. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for all that you do. We thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Lord, we know that there are people among us and watching online who are struggling. Either they're believers who are struggling with their faith or people who haven't believed yet that are struggling with finding a way to learn to do that uh, the world works against us like it always has and the enemy always thinks he's winning God I just pray that to those believers who are struggling you would remind them they have already been given the victory there is no reason whatsoever for us to ever give up because you never gave up on us 
He sent his son to die for us when we had no way of being righteous, and our righteousness came through him. Give us a passion to serve, knowing we've been given a gift we didn't deserve, and that's salvation. But for those who haven't believed God, whatever's holding them back, I just pray that they stop listening to the whispers of the enemy and realize that the things you said on that cross still stand true. It is finished. Sin has been atoned for. Those who believe now in the work of that was done on that cross can have eternal life free of charge. Not because they deserve it, but because you earned it. Not because we're good enough, but because you were. We defeated death because you defeated death. Now all we have to do is believe. And if they make that decision, I pray they come to you. But God, those of us who are believers, give us a passion. This world needs so bad to see this great gift of grace and understand that there is a love out there that is unconditional for those who are willing to receive it. We just pray, God, that as we leave here today, you would keep us safe and let us live what we profess. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, we just pray we would come together one more time and give you the praise, honor, and glory and say worthy of. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.